I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Wine brings people to the, the industry. And then when you're there, I think I think it's the, the people in the industry that, that make you stay. Because you go, oh, wow, I found like-minded people and it's a lot of fun. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Anthony Fickers is making his own way in wine in the sub-region of Nalumbik. This is a shire located outside of Melbourne in the northeast. Championing minimal intervention wine, he is a new generation of winemaker turning heads with his label Rising Wines. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Shante. Such a pleasure. You know, I've come across your wines um, a few times and I will uh, be as proud to say that I've definitely had them as our kind of drinking wine uh, throughout the week and enjoyed them thoroughly. So I'm really glad to be able to chat to you today. Uh, how is vintage going and where are you at in the process? So vintage is, is finished up down here, Shante. Uh, we picked our last grapes uh, I think at the end of March in the Yarra. Uh, that didn't include uh, another little project that I've got down in Mornington. But um, for both Yarra and Mornington wines, they're, they're finished fermenting. The reds are mainly through malolactic fermentation. I think I've got maybe four or five batches out of 20 or 30 in the winery that are, are doing something or other. Um, in some cases, malo. In some cases, chugging through the last gram of sugar. Um, and, and who really knows? You can, you know, stick your ear over them. They're doing something, so they will remain unsulfured for the time being. Well, you know, at the end of the day, they are um, alive entities, aren't they? And, and sometimes you've just got to leave them alone and, and see what happens. That, that, that's exactly right. I, I don't like asking the lab to, you know, check, check everything, you know, every week or every, you know, twice a week or whatever. I'd rather just go and look at the barrel and, and pull the bung out and see if there's pressure and, and put my ear over it and look at how cloudy the wine is and, and whether it looks like a sort of a yeast cloudiness or a, a bacterial cloudiness. And, and um, yeah, if it looks like it's doing something, then, then let it be as long as it's not going too feral. <laughs> Perfect. Now, tell me a little bit about, um, you mean, you have had an amazing history with working some amazing places and great winemakers, but let's go right back and just tell us about how you got involved in, in wine and what's your first memory of um, either seeing someone else drink wine or what's your first memory of wine? Um, so, I, I grew up in, in Wollongong in New South Wales, um, so not a, a known wine region by any means. Uh, and my parents drank wine uh, around the table, so there was always, it was always kind of there. And uh, I guess I first started drinking wine when I'd go, to, I'd go to parties and, you know, most of the time as a young guy, you'd take, you know, a six-pack of beer or something like that and you'd have to put it in the ice bucket and then, you know, your beers would go missing overnight and I'd think, you know, there's got to be a better way than this. And um, so I cottoned on to the fact that, you know, red wine you didn't have to put in the esky. You could just kind of hide it behind a pillar somewhere or whatever. And um, so, yeah, I sort of got into red wine. I thought, this stuff's pretty good. And um, and I remember just going down to the local, you know, bottle shop, quite a generic sort of big big company um, bottle shop, and, and they'd have little um, stickers underneath each wine. And, you know, one would have a, a pizza on it, another one would have lamb on it. And I was like what's all this about, you know? Like they're saying that I should be drinking this with pizza and, and this one with, with lamb. Surely red wine is red wine. And 
So, you know, they do 20% off if you bought a six-pack. So I remember one day I, bought, I thought, I'll buy a six-pack and I'll just I'll just try through these red wines and, and just see if there's any difference. And I was absolutely blown away that there was any difference at all. I, I honestly thought it was just a scam by, you know, the supermarket and wine companies to basically have the same, you know, red wine was red wine and you put different fancy labels on it and charge more or less according to the label. So it was a real revelation to me that that this was the case, and and I was just hooked from that point. Um, and 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 as you know, Shante, um, it's just such a rabbit hole. The whole world of wine, you know, you end up spending a bit more and and trying different regions, and you know, and this is all just in the context of Australia. And then down the track, you you know, you start trying French wines and Italian wines, and it was mind boggling. Yeah. So at the at the same time, I was doing a a uh, science degree at, at Wollongong University and kind of thinking, this isn't really for me. I knew I liked science based things, but I really wanted a job where I could sit down at the end of the day and say, you know, I, I did that or I made that, uh, not, you know, spend 10 years researching some, you know, protein that may or may not cure cancer, probably not. Uh, so, I really wanted a science-based field where I could make something. And, you know, at the same time, I'm getting into wine, uh, learning about wine and wine styles. And lo and behold, I'm flicking through the, the book that has all the, the uni degrees because back in those days, I thought that was the only way that you get anywhere in life. You have to go to uni. Um, and uh, and there, there it was, you know, um, Bachelor of, of, wine, of Wine Science at, at CSU. And I thought is this serious? Like you can actually go to uni and learn how to make wine. I thought, how good's this? The stars have aligned. And uh, so, so off I, off I went to, to CSU. Awesome. And you're a Wollongong boy. I can't believe that. I went to high school at um, Wollongong Performing Arts. I know that's off topic, but um, I just love that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I was, I was aware that you're, Sort of, you, you're um, based up in the northern suburbs there. So I grew up um, up around Balgowny, sort of way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a awesome. nice part of the world. Get back there a fair bit to visit family. Yeah, it really is. I think we've got so much at our fingertips here. But um, back back onto why we're here. <laughs> um, but I, I love that. You know, it makes me feel like you know people from the gong can do great bloody things you know they talk they talk crap about us but um, <laughs> um I, do, so- I do like seeing Wollongong come up in like the Instagram patuta things you know there's always the odd probably every six months there's sort of a, a little uh batuta post on on Wollongong and it's always pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> they crack me up they are they're very clever yeah so you um you ended up Finishing your degree, and then you did you end up going straight to the Hunter Valley? Is that was that the next step? Oh, I, I got quite a few credits, so I actually only did um, like one year. I did one year on campus back in the old days when CSU actually wanted you on campus. Um, and so then I went out, I only had after that one year to, to go, so I went and um, started working. And um, yeah, went up to the Hunter, I had my first proper uh, vintage. I say proper because I did. I crushed, or I helped crush maybe 20 or 30 tonnes of Chardonnay uh, in 2000 um, out in um, Ludnam, out towards Penrith in Western Sydney. There was a little yeah. winery out there and we, we crushed some, um, some Chardonnay out there. And um, so, yeah, I did my first proper vintage um, at Mount Pleasant um, in the Hunter 
in 2002 and um, I absolutely loved it. Like I, I can still remember to this day um, just how much fun it was, you know, just working hard, playing hard. The, the setup was that um, everyone started at the same time and finished at the same time. Um, so we could all have knockoff beers and, and often we'd kick onto someone's house for a barbecue or something like that. And I just thought, this is the most fun thing in the world. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, luckily from there, the, the guy uh, that was the winemaker well, under Phil Ryan at the time, so I guess the, the operational sort of winemaker, um, Scott yeah. Stevens, he, he moved over to, to Bortley's uh, when they opened up a winery in the, in the Hunter. Um, in 2003 and uh, and he said oh why don't you come and work as my assistant so I took on that and then that kind of segued me down to um, you know doing vintage with the Bortleys in the Yarra Valley and um, you know once I got down here I was like wow how good is this you know Mm. so many wine styles um, made so well you know in in the Hunter like I, I love the Hunter um, but it was, you know, it was very much at the time it was um, Chardonnay, Shiraz and Semillon. Um, and, you know, Semillon's world class. And, you know, I love I love personally the Chardonnays and, and the Shirazes from up there. Um, but maybe they're not as recognised as much sort of outside outside the people who know in, in a way, I guess. Mm. Um, and then I came down here and it was just like, wow, every – every variety you could think of and, um, you know, being made really well and, and being held out as, as an example um, as, as world-class Australian um, wine, you know, Pinot, Chardonnay, Cabernet blends, um, maybe not so much Shiraz, but, you know, around here, again, a bit like the Hunter Shiraz, it's a bit more, you know, people who, who know it and love it um, don't stop talking about it. Um, yeah, so I just, I just really love the diversity down here. Uh, and and the fact that I guess at the time everyone was talking about Pinot and Pinot's rise and um, how it was you know the greatest red wine in the world and Burgundy this and Burgundy that and I really wanted to learn how to make Pinot. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of how I made my way down to the Yarra Valley. Interesting, I think, and and I think. I can understand why somewhere like the Yarra um, can look more, like attractive to, especially someone kind of up and coming as well. That in the Hunter, you know, you've got some pretty well established houses there, and so too you do in the Yarra as well. But you've got, I think, a bit more of a breadth of smaller operations and things like that. So I can see, you know, the the attraction of of um, kind of paving your way down there as well. You certainly went to some of the best with your. Um, your experience in terms of working for Giant Steps and Medhurst and good old Mac Mac Forbes, uh, what was your experience like with all those different uh, winemakers and and wineries? Oh, it's it's amazing when I sort of sit and think about all the like really really amazing winemakers I've worked with. Um, I just go, wow, how, how lucky am I that I kind of you know came came across these people, um, even just at um, like. When I when I came down to the Bortleys in the Yarra just to do vintages from the Hunter, um, the crew at the Bortleys in I think it was two thousand and four. It was just phenomenal. They had um, they had Steve Weber was there, David Slingsby Smith, um, Paul Bridgman, uh, Ben Kane, who's over in the states now. Um, um, 
Sarah, who's who's the winemaker there now, she she was um, sort of maybe a, a an assistant or head seller hand or something like that. Um, Bill Downey was there. It was just phenomenal. I, I I look back and I'm like, how did you actually afford to have so many winemakers? And I, I don't really have an answer to the question in my own head. But it was just um, I think I think Steve Weber just loved he just loved the fact that. You know, there was all these creative, amazing winemakers there, all working together, and um, and they were really having a crack at. You know, his goal at the time was we want to make the best Pinot in Australia in the in the next few years, and um, and they were having such a such a big crack at it. Um, so that was a really amazing place. And then to move on and um, you know work with Mac for five and a half years, you know, a few years down the track, that was awesome. That was really at the, I guess, at the start of his of his journey, like his model has changed a lot since then um when i worked for him we were mainly just buying fruit uh we had we we spent a lot of time with the growers but we were mainly just buying fruit and it really was after i left there in 2012 he he started like leasing more and more vineyards and and planting vineyards and um yeah his his models changed a lot but it was really amazing to to work with him for five and a half years and see the birth of you know what's become you know his, his his brand and and he's become you know one of the most well recognised um, winemakers not just in the Yarra but I think even worldwide. You know you go over to um, Europe and 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 people know Mac because um, you know he's that kind of character. You meet him, you're not going to forget him. Um, and uh, he he's done so much to promote the Yarra and help people understand about the Yarra. You know the the whole start of the upper and the lower Yarra um, conversation with with the trade. I think it was probably talked about um, internally, you know, amongst winemakers. But I'm not sure that the wine trade really understood the differences across the Yarra Valley until Mac um, started talking about it and put a map together. And it's like, you know, this is why this is cooler up here, and and this is, you know, why it's a bit warmer down in Coldstream. Um, so, so that was really amazing to see um, from from a winemaking point of view, but also I guess a marketing and a communication to trade sort of point of view. Um, yeah, and that's where I started. Um, I started my own label working for Mac as well. So he was very encouraging of that. So that was uh, yeah. So my original label was Fickers Two Bricks, which was a um, a bit of a, <laughs> a nickname. Given to me by the guys at um, at the Bortleys, I don't know if it was Paul Bridgman or, or Bill Downey, probably a combo of the two. They used to like to give everyone a, a nickname, and it was um, it was uh, Fickers Two Bricks or um, Tony. Um, and yes, yeah, so I kind of used that as my label, and that's um, that was always got a bit of a chuckle. You know, I never set out to make really serious wines with with my label. I just wanted to have fun accessible wine so it, it worked well and then later I developed the the very uh you know originally thought out label Fickers single vineyard when I needed to charge more money for Chardonnay and Pinot. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that that's a great um element because I think accessible wines is really, really important for our market. And you know, like you said, it's not always just about making, you know, really um, exclusive wines that you have to pay through the nose for. It's about everybody enjoying wine. And I think that, you know, the consideration towards what's accessible is a really important one that perhaps um, maybe we maybe some people don't always strive for. So and and having fun while you're doing it. I mean, isn't that the whole point? Like you said, you you went from 
a degree where you, you couldn't believe that, you know, that people were doing this and it was fun and you got to kind of keep a little bit of that along the way, I think. Oh, for sure. I, th- I, think, I think that probably, you know, 95% of the, of the wine industry realise that and, and do have fun and, and that's why you stay, you know. Like the, I think it attracts like-minded people and, um, you know, industry events and, and work can just be a lot of fun, you know. Vintage can be a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work. But when you get like-minded people um, in a winery together uh, who are all willing to hang around and, and do long days day after day and, and have a laugh, it's it's a lot of fun. Definitely. I mean, you know, you're talking to a hospo person. that we, we get involved in it because I think the idea is of sitting in an office it doesn't sound thrilling to us and working with our hands and, and working in a team in a high-paced environment. It is just so attractive and the adrenaline, it just gets under your skin. And I imagine vintage is exactly the same as that. And like you said, at the end of the day, it's exhausting, but you put your feet up and you look around you and think, oh, I went to war with these people and that beer just tastes so much better at the end of the day, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. For sure. I remember uh, when, I, when I was at Medhurst with Simon Steele, um, we used the analogy, we stole it off, um, off a chef. It might have been like Anthony Bourdain or something who said that, you know, being in a kitchen is like being on a pirate ship. And um, it kind of can feel a bit like that, you know, it can get a bit loose. Um, but you're all there uh, with one common goal and you're all putting in and at the end of the day, yeah, like you say, Shante, that, that beer does taste extra good. Yeah, when you've earned it, only until then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you you also did some travelling and I can see that you've ticked off uh, some of the big names of going over to Piedmont in Italy and France in Burgundy and, and then Baden of all places, hopefully working with some Pinot. Uh, what was the kind of country or, or, or region that really impacted your kind of philosophy or that you took something from and thought, I want to, I want to keep that ideal when I when I come back and, and create my own label? Yeah, I think definitely the the visit to, to Piedmont and, and Burgundy, they're the, they're the top two. Um, the, the German travel was more to follow my partner. She was, um, she was studying for a year in, in Germany and uh, she was way down in the south um, on the Swiss border and so I just needed somewhere convenient, to be honest. The winery wasn't great. <laughs> the wines we made were definitely not great. I learned a lot about uh, – mold and how much mold you can have in uh, grapes and still make wine that kind of tastes okay. Uh, but the people there were lovely, you know, and, and yeah, like, like I, I sort of touched on before, I think it's wine brings people to the, the industry. And then when you're there, I think, I think it's the, the people in the industry that, that make you stay. You should go, oh, wow, I found like-minded people and it's a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, the German winery I worked with was not was not the greatest, but um, they they were a lot of fun and they were lovely people. So it was it was a great experience. Um, but to go to um, to Piedmont and work with Pederi Collar, and then go to Burgundy, and it was a very short trip to Burgundy. I was only there for about ten days, um, but I worked with Cecile Tremblay. Um, Holy and, moly! No, you didn't. Yeah, yeah. Stop it. And uh, yeah, Mac. Mac um, I was working for Mac at the time, and um, and he hooked that that up for me. He said, oh, "I love her wines, and um, we'll just find a way that you can go and work with her." And um, and he did. 
<laughs> I am so fangirling right now. I think they are some of the most stunning ethereal wines on the planet. I am just so amazed. Good for you. Ten days. Ten days in heaven. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was it was amazing. I think um, I was there for every pick. Um, I think the first ferment I'd, had, I'd only just started, but that was kind of inconsequential. It didn't matter. Um, well, I saw I saw every pick. Uh, went into every vineyard. Um, we spent one day. We kind of I got there the first day. She picked me up, and um, I jumped into a, a wooden vat, and I was like scrubbing a vat with sulfur and lighting it up, um, you know, to, to kill off any bacteria or whatever had grown in there. And then the next day we started picking, and um, I think on about the fourth day we stopped and we went around to every vineyard that we hadn't picked and um, just tasted fruit in all these amazing vineyards. And um, and I think uh, we finished the day drinking champagne and stuff, and I was like, wow, this is that was like the best, you know, wine day of my life. It was just – it was it was just so educational to taste the fruit uh, in the vineyards um, and walk through with her. It was it was amazing. Wow, I mean, did you pick a brains about what she was after? Or I mean, I, I would just have so many questions. I you know she probably would have gotten rid of me and been like, my God, this one. <laughs> <laughs> what what did you what did you learn from from her? I mean, what did you take away other than that she's got good taste in champagne and knows what she's doing? Um, I don't. I think she was. Uh, she was definitely picking a bit earlier than others. Um, I, I really like. I really like the point of what she where she picks, um, where she's not necessarily waiting for full on flavour. Um, she's still picking with a lot of vibrancy. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, but when you walk through and you talk to her, and you sort of pick up pick berries that are a bit riper, and you go, "What do, what do you think is is that in the in the right zone?" and and she'd say, "Yeah, I reckon that's spot on. We just need you know two more days to to get the rest of it to that point." Um, and 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 breaking up blocks and saying, you know, like we'll pick this top half separately to to this half because there's a different energy here. Um, you know, all, all that stuff you you take on board. Um, but you know, there's no, there's no great secret. Um, you know, I, I, that was the first time I'd ever seen anyone cut the middle of the stem out in the, in the cellar. Um, that takes a long time. I learned that. Um, yeah, so that was, that was, a, that's, you know, from a winemaking sort of technique point of view, that was the first time I'd seen that. And it's like, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but you've got to be making really expensive wine to afford to do it. But, to to get rid of the the middle of the stalk, so you're getting rid of a, a huge proportion of green stalky potential green stalky um, tannin, I should say, um, and then yeah, still getting full carbonic fermentation. It's like oh wow, that's an awesome idea, but until you can charge you know hundreds of dollars for your wine, <laughs> yeah, you haven't got the labour to do that, do you? <laughs> yeah, it's just one to file away. <laughs> Amazing. Um- I want to talk about your brand Rising. I know that you're a busy man and you make wine for In Dreams and also the Sticks brand, but the Rising brand is the wine or the the brand that I've come across a few times and and the wines have just really stopped me in my tracks, Uh, in particular the Cabernet and the Gamay that you make. What's your aim with Rising Wines and how come you identify with Nilumbic and, you know, talk about that subregion rather than kind of, I know you put Yarra on the Valley, Yarra Valley on the label, but, um, What's the aim of Rising Wines? Um, yeah, so, so 
I guess to go back to the start, Rising Wines is based um, not exclusively, but the majority of the wines we make come from the Rising Vineyard in St Andrews, which is in the Shire of Nilambic. It's not the Shire of the Yarra Ranges. Um, so Shire of the Yarra Ranges encapsulates uh, Coldstream, Hillsville, you know, Yarra Junction, Gladysdale, all, all the um, probably 95% of the Yarra Valley brands that you know, maybe more. And uh, over in Nillambic, we are in the, the Yarra Valley GI wine region, but we're not in the Yarra Ranges. Uh, so it is... It's a small distinction, uh, but it's it's quite significant. The, the the soils and the altitude and and sunlight hours are all a bit different over in Nilambic. So we've started we've started trying to talk about uh, the rising brand in terms of of Nilambic, just so we've got that distinction. Because if you line up, particularly I think the the Pinots, if you line up, say uh, a Nilambic Pinot a Coldstream Pinot and a Gladysdale Pinot. I think the Coldstream and the Gladysdale, you, you could probably go, you know, Gladysdale, that looks like Upper Yarra, Coldstream, Lower Yarra. This other one just kind of looks a bit, I don't know, not 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 quite right almost. Um, the, the soils up there are much more degraded than the rest of the Yarra Valley. Um, really skinny topsoils, um, very undulating um, land and... Um, more sunshine hours in, in general, so um, quite quite warm days and then really cool nights as well. So the top of Rising Vineyard, for instance, is, is 250 metres above sea level. So um, it's um, the diurnal fluctuations quite high, so really cold, cold mornings and nights and warm days. And so you get, you get quite different wines. So we're just trying to, I guess, get out there and say, hey, our wines do look different. Um, some people are like them, some people won't. That's cool, but but this is this is why they're different. And um, again, mm. I guess going back to when Mac was trying to educate people about Upper and Lower Yarra Valley, we're just trying to sort of add the third bit onto that, the third part of the valley, which which we see as as Nilambic. Um, mm. In terms of the Gamay and the Cabernet Franc, um, they both actually come from another vineyard. Not, not from rising, <laughs> and we brought those on board. Uh, we brought those on board at the inception of the brand because um, they do, I guess, have that that kind of left field sort of wow factor. I know they're becoming more and more common, but there's still not heaps of them around. And and at the end of the day, we were going to start rising the label mainly with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And there's just so many Yarra, good Yarra Valley Pinots and Chardonnays. It's a bit hard to sort of distinguish yourself. So we thought if we bring on board um, a Cabernet Franc and a Gamay, and um, you know, but, but you know, particularly if we make them in a in a kind of I guess a sort of interesting way um, with lots of whole bunches, then um, hopefully people will go, oh, they look cool. Oh, and, you know, out of the swathes of Yarra Valley Chardonnay that there is out there, yours is actually really, really good as well and um, and quite unique. So that's why we have those um, those two wines on, on board. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I really like the idea of kind of hailing um, and, and championing where you're from and what makes you guys unique other than the, what you maybe do in the winery as well. And, and with the Nalumbic Bad Earth, you know, series and labels um 
you know, it's great to be talking about where you are and, and why, you know, why your wines do taste like they do in the bottle, you know. And, and I, I think I haven't looked at the Bad Earth series. So you've got your aromatic dry white and your light dry red and nice little rosé in a pet nat. Um, and so I'm super curious. I mean, they, they, they draw you in already and, and think, oh, what's, what am I in for for that? Especially I particularly like when people name their wines after, like you said, a style of wine rather than just what the bridal or the makeup is because I think you look at the wine in a holistic sense of what is this telling me it's going to offer me rather than let me dissect it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Like they are not wines that really need to be dissected. Um, they're just pleasurable bistro-style wines um, that, you know, they, they do have pretty cool labels on them, I reckon. <laughs> um and they kind of grab your attention and they've got flavor um, and they, they just kind of taste good, you know. I think at the end of the day, the aim with wine is to make it taste good and we're not trying to make anything too serious with, with the Bad Earth range. Um, hence, you know, we've got rosé, we've got pet nat and we've got a white and a red. It's just, it's just quite simple. And, um, and yeah, they're, they're just meant to be good fun wines. Whereas with the, the core range of, of rising from the rising vineyard, that's the, the Pinot and the Chardonnay, they're meant to be more serious wines in a way, still very pleasurable to drink, but a lot more, I guess, expressive of that particular site and the, the, the terroir, for lack of a better word, that you see in Nilambic. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, it's so nice. I think maybe, you know, you have taken something from out of Max book because I feel like the messaging is clear and, and you know, you are fairly small operation in terms of the how much you produce and uh, I feel like your wines are really, you know, put into a category where you can kind of see by the labels, by the price point, by, you know, the way that you're talking about them, where they all sit, which is really clear. And that's actually really important when people are trying to almost digest a new winery and a new estate, like what's this all about and how do I process it? I think that that is really important. But talk about you are pretty minimal intervention. You, I sulfur imagine when you need to. Um how do you approach in terms of, of talking about minimal intervention and kind of that natural scope of the wine world? Yeah, I think the the main thing for me with minimal intervention, probably the, the, the biggest issue that I see is um, just not – you just don't use too much oak. Um, most of my wines, like all the rising stuff, ends up in oak um, a lot of the time because, you know, even with the, the bad earth stuff, there's such a small volume that I don't have tanks that small and you never, you know, fit them into tanks. So they're going to oak, but they'll go into old oak. And um, for me, that's that's one of the biggest things. People still hear people talk about, you know, minimal intervention and then you kind of taste their wines and they, there's a fair whack of oak in there. It might not be completely smothered, but that's that's for me the, the, the biggest issue there. Other than that, you know, I, I just think it's more hand-picking, gentle um, de-stemming or pressing, um, minimal use of, of sulfur um, and not really adding anything else, um, you know, letting, letting wild yeast do their thing. And then uh, at the end of the process, <clears throat> uh, filtering as little as possible. So, you know, I think filters, um, you know, can probably 
make you sleep a bit um, better at night, not worrying about what's going in your wines, but um, they definitely take something out, you know. Sometimes, you know, I've seen vintages where, where the filter actually make things look better, like 2016 um, in the Yarra Valley was really hot and um, and there were some weird sort of colours and, and hazes and stuff in a lot of Pinots. And then I saw some filtered versions and I thought, they actually look they actually look a bit tidier and cleaner, but did they look less like 2016 at the same time? They, they kind of yeah. probably did. Um, and, you know, most people might say, <clears throat> well, that's a good thing. But, <laughs> but it's not necessarily the most honest way to make wine. Yeah. I think it's really important these days to um, be able to talk about where you sit in your philosophies because there is a grey area when it comes to um, some of the words we throw around these days about, you know, what style of wine we are. So um, I think it's it's important to define it in, in, in what way you can as well. So what's next mm. for you on the cards? I th- feel like you've got a few projects happening. Are we just going to take it easy and put your feet up for the rest of the year or you've got more happening <laughs> elsewhere? Oh, no, there's, there's, there's always something happening. So um, yeah, we're planting, uh, we've, we've, um, we've bought a property on the other side of the valley in the Upper Yarra <clears throat> to complement rising. Um, so we'll kind of have, I guess, the, the yin and the yang. Of, um, of Yarra Valley sites and uh, so we plan to plant at the end of this year and so yeah I'm kind of getting my head around that and uh, organising uh, people to do stuff that I don't quite understand and uh, <laughs> being, being a winemaker and, and not so much a, a vineyard um, planter um, it's been a steep learning curve but a really fun one and um, it's it's going to be, or it has been so far, and I'm sure will be, um, you know, in, in three or four years when I finally pick something off that vineyard, it's going to be, um, you know, a really rewarding process to go from, from you know, basically a cow paddock to, um, you know, a really cool vineyard, I think. So that's, um, that's my major project. And uh, the other thing we have on the boil is um, we've, well, in 2000, yeah, 2000, we signed a lease on a vineyard in Mornington on um, on Main Ridge, so oh. I made the first wines. I've made the first wines from that site, just Pinot and Chardonnay, um, in two thousand and one, and um, actually bottled those last week. And um, there's no there's no label or anything yet. <laughs> That's still to be determined. Um, it's kind of a work in progress, but um, I'm really happy with the wines. I'd, I'd never made. Mornington Peninsula wines before, um, so that's been that's been a lot of a great learning curve as well. Just looking at the differences, um, you know, between Yarra and <clears throat> and Mornington, and and um, yeah, I think we've got a really really good site down there. Um, it's been a lot of fun making those wines. Oh, totally different makeup, and I think it's interesting because you. You really want to be, like you said, a minimal intervention winemaker, you know, not doing what, you know, when you need to not do something, you do it, but you're actually working with two of the hardest varietals where (laughs) they don't just make themselves, unlike a few other varieties we have here in Australia. So, um, but Mornington's, what a great region as well. So I look forward to hearing more about those. Anthony, I do ask uh, everyone on the podcast just to find out a little bit more about who they are and what makes them tick. If you could only drink three 
boozy beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Uh, I would probably start. Uh, so if I say I'm on, on on my deathbed and I have to have three drinks in a row, maybe <laughs> maybe you should rephrase that to that one. Perfect. Um, <clears throat> I'd probably start with a beer. Um, I don't drink super fancy beers or anything. Uh, you know, um, at, at the moment um, I've been uh, at the winery in particular. You know, like have have a beer in the in the afternoon. We've been drinking. Um, Hargraves Hill um, hazy hazel hazy pale ale or something like that out of a can and um, I just like something with a, a you know a little bit of flavour not heaps of flavour not not all that weird sort of sour beer and that sorry to people who like that stuff but um, I just kind of like you know one step up from what the old timers would call normal beer I guess. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that sort of explained it. Um, and then definitely um, Chardonnay. Like if I could only have one boozy drink for the rest of my life, it would be Chardonnay. I just I just love it. Um, I love making it. I love drinking it. Um, I think there's so many different um, styles out there <clears throat> that if I only had one choice, you know, you could – you could drink Shardy and um, you'd cover a lot of bases, you know, from Blanc to Blanc through to, you know, full-blown, um, you know, big sort of styles of Burgundy. Um, and, I, look, it's going to be pretty obvious, I think. If I've got to choose a third boozy uh, beverage, it's probably going to be Pinot. Um, <laughs> closely followed by Beaujolais, mm. I, I've got to say, um, in terms of, in terms of uh, French wines, French reds, that's definitely the one that I drink the most, um, mainly because I can afford it um, as opposed to uh, red burgundy proper, um, Pinot Noir burgundy. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I really do love a good Beaujolais. Absolutely. They're so good. They're such good drinks. And you're right, like for the hip pocket, it doesn't hurt as much, but there's some pretty serious, you know, Beaujolais out there that's just made exceptionally well and they are such delicious drinks. So yeah, yeah, and the, the density they can get is um, quite amazing, particularly after I've made you know a few now in the Yarra, um, and they're, they're like my the, the gamets I've made are, are quite light. Um, even when I try and push ripeness a bit more, they just look light. And then I look at the Beaujolais, you know, proper Beaujolais, and go, wow, how do they get that density? <laughs> it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, density and concentration and tannin and yeah, 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 you. Very true. Well, Anthony, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. I have to say, I have to say thanks to the beer thief that stole your beers out of the bathtub <laughs> all those years ago because it means that you're working in wine and we're thrilled about that. Uh, but it's been really lovely to getting to know you. And I, look, I love the rising wines um, and, and for that matter, the Dreams and Sticks brands as well. So keep on keeping on. And uh, thanks for spending a bit of time with me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, Chante. Hopefully we'll meet in person one day and we can continue on our chat. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Cheers to you, mate. All right. Bye. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.